welcome to another episode of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Traumas Career Cast. I'm uh, Zaf Kassim from the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, one of the major efforts of the East Career Development Committee is to highlight various career paths and opportunities in critical care medicine. Uh, in a prior career cast, I had the opportunity to review the evolving role of emergency medicine trained critical care physicians and how they can form an important part of the critical care workforce within the hospital system. But today I have the pleasure of talking to another set of EM critical care physicians from around the country. And what's unique about this group is that not only do they have a practice within the hospital, but they're all involved with out-of-hospital care as well, which is uh, primarily pre-hospital and critical care transport medicine. So let me just introduce our guests. Uh, we've got Jason Cohen. Uh, Dr. Cohen completed his training in emergency medicine at the University of Massachusetts and is critical care fellowship at the Brigham in Boston, where he continues to work uh, both on the surgical and cardiac ICUs, uh, in addition to being the chief medical officer uh, for Boston MedFlight. Uh, Jacob Keeperman uh, completed his uh, EM residency as well as two fellowships, one in uh, emergency medical services and the other in critical care medicine at Washington University in St. Louis um, and continues to practice there on the SICU as well as providing medical direction for the AIRIVAC Life team. Uh, and finally, Jonathan Traeger, um, who uh, completed his residency in emergency medicine at Temple um, in Philadelphia, followed by critical care fellowship at Cooper University Hospital in New Jersey, uh, and currently attends both in the ED and the ICU at St. Luke's uh, University Hospital in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, but he also serves as the medical director for St. Luke's Emergency and Transport Services and the Critical Care Transport Program. So listen, welcome uh, to all of you. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I appreciate you guys taking time out of your busy days um, to be here to talk to uh, the team here at East. Um, uh, we also uh, have uh, Lazo Karai here joining us from Oregon University Trauma Surgery uh, and also on the career committee with me as well. Um, but I just wanted to start by asking, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, shy away from out-of-hospital medicine. Um, you know, for a lot of physicians working in the hospital, it's just a footnote in the inpatient medical record. So just to start off, uh, can you talk about what the draw was to pre-hospital and transport medicine for you guys? Jason, you want to start? Sure, I'll go first. Um, the draw to the out-of-hospital medicine piece for me was twofold. One, I uh, was an EMS. That's what was my pathway medicine. It was the, uh, the gateway drug for me, uh, working as an EMT and then as a paramedic in college and then after college before medical school. Um, so I've always been involved in riding around in ambulances and lights and sirens and taking care of the patients. Um, and uh, it was there that I really got an appreciation for wanting to take care of the sick patients. And that's how I ended up going into critical care once I followed uh, medical school. And um, following that, uh, when I Finished residency, I went into the Army for a few years, and uh, while I was deployed, I was the medical director for our, uh, our critical care transport team that we had from uh, from Baghdad and to the Air Force hospitals, um, and really uh, spent a lot of time thinking about that little aspect of care and what a, how much of an impact it has uh, on those patients and how much, or I should say how little, people uh, being physicians really understand um how that uh how that can have an impact down the road how the little things that happen in that 15 minutes to two hour iteration 
um, can make or break a patient. Uh, and that it's not a mag magic transporter that you just push a patient out into you know, an ambulance bay and say goodbye and they magically show up at a tertiary care center. Um, but there's a lot of planning and forethought that have to go into it. And uh, it's really a pretty important part of taking care of a critical care patient. Yeah, very much so. Jake? Yeah, thanks. So, um, like Jason, I started as an EMT in college, and um, through that experience, I realized how important it is to have a medical director that understands out-of-hospital medicine. Um, pursued emergency medicine during residency. I flew as a transport physician for our children's hospital transport team, and um, when I was instructed by a neonatologist who was serving as medical director to do a lumbar puncture in the back of a helicopter um, on a three-day-old prior to giving antibiotics before a hour and a half flight is when I realized that um, I need to get people that understand again what it's like to practice in the out-of-hospital setting um, and that it is not just a transport service, but it's the care being provided and minimizing time out of hospital is really the key. Um, and so I pursued, again, both critical care and EMS fellowships so that I could really bring the continuum of care, um, bringing the EMS mindset, the emergency medicine mindset, but also so much of what we do is providing critical care um, in that out of hospital setting that I really wanted to be able to uh, string all those together and really maximize outcomes for patients. Great. John? Yeah, I imagine uh, pretty much the same. I grew up in Montreal uh, in Canada. Uh, the Quebec uh, pre-hospital system was fairly limited at the time that I was there. They had had sort of advanced care paramedics, as we know it in the United States, back in the 70s. That went away for a period of time. They are back now. The time that I was there, though, we had a community uh, volunteer EMS service in my uh, sort of my small segment of Cote St. Luke, a, a, a suburb of, of Montreal. Got involved in that when I was 16, and then, uh, you know, after a few years of doing that, finishing school, sort of got frustrated with the system there uh, in, gen uh, in general in, in the province, and then ended up moving to the U.S. to pursue paramedic school, and then, you know, medical school after that. And so, uh, similar to, you know, both uh, Jason and, uh, and Jake, uh, it's, it's this concept and something that I've been working on uh, as we're trying to work on. Unfortunately, COVID sort of hit and stymied that a little bit, this concept of, you know, how do we improve the transport system in uh, in the country, perhaps around the world, to have more physicians and practitioners who are educated in the concepts of transport medicine, right? So we're not doing LPs or lumbar punctures in the back of a helicopter uh, on, you know, on, on, on infants. Uh, and so, you know, I find my role now, because I have the background in EMS, I have my, you know, my EM and my critical care aspects, it makes life much easier, uh, one, for medical direction for our crews. There's the respect that you get from having sort of been, you know, a grunt in the, in the field, and you can understand. And when you're accepting transfers, you understand the limitations from emergency departments as well. And so it sort of helps to, uh, you know, uh, to, to uh, create a well-oiled machine that actually works properly and you can still provide education. Great. Yeah. And so I think that um, kind of... It uh, takes us to uh, nicely to another segment because you're all physicians involved in pre-hospital care or, or transport medicine. Um, and, you know, certainly where, when I was uh, working uh, in the UK, I saw a system that had a lot of uh, physician involvement in pre-hospital care, same in Europe with their system. 
but you know, if if you look at the U.S. system as a whole, that's kind of you guys are kind of an oddity um, in so much as uh, being so involved with prehospital care. So, what's the current state of prehospital care and critical care transport, um, in particular medical direction as well in the U.S.? I know this is kind of a a difficult question to answer in a short amount of time, but uh, do you guys want to give a crack at it? Can I say in a nutshell, uh, it's, uh, I guess, a work in progress to be politically correct, it seems. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, compared to the, to the UK and, uh, you know, I, I know you did some time in London. I had a great fortune last year of going to do some training with London Hems. Uh, and just sort of look at the way the system is there. I mean, I think for all of us, we'd all love to be able to get out and do probably clinical time and actually get paid for it, uh, you know, break our time from out of the hospital walls into the street. I think there's there's so many, uh, you know, bits and pieces across the country. Uh, it's, 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 I think it's sort of a challenging system right now, uh, just sort of various ways of doing things. You know, a local flight program here, they go through medical command for all of their stuff from an ER physician, even interfacility stuff. An ER doc doesn't really want to have any anything to do with interfacility transports. Uh, you know, and then you have, uh, you know, certain states will have only certain practitioners can be, you know, medical command physicians. Like in Pennsylvania, it's only emergency medicine physicians. So there's so much variation, uh, you know, across across the country. Uh, you know, a little you know, a little bit fractured, unfortunately. Jake and Jason, do you see that in your parts of the country as well, that kind of uh, uh, variation in practice even within the city? Absolutely. I think that for so much of um, history, one, EMS is a very new uh, medical specialty. It was just recognized by the American Board of um, medical specialties as a subspecialty of emergency medicine uh, 40 years ago. Um, and really prior to that, with limited exceptions, it was largely people um, putting their signatures on paper to credential uh, their pre-hospital providers and to sign DEA uh, paperwork. And um, there hadn't been as much involvement as there certainly should have been. Um, Certainly, as Jonathan said, in the U.S., there is limited physician in the field um, practice. Mentioned London, um, Sydney, Ham, so many places around the world have really uh, done an exceptional job of bringing advanced care to the field. And it's not that our paramedics, nurses um, can't and don't provide excellent care. I think many of them are fantastic and um, providing incredible things, but there is something that you can bring when you um, can provide and bring our level of training. You know, you also have to take into account in the United States, paramedics is a certificate program. It is not a degree, certainly not a bachelor's degree. Um, it's a thousand hours of training, which um, limits the amount of critical thinking um, that they're really trained to do. And so that has limited our system here. I think we are, uh, collectively as EMS physicians trying to really improve that and to raise the bar um, and move towards, again, bringing more physicians to the field where we can uh, really bring some expertise and enthusiasm uh, to advance the specialty. Great. So, uh, Jason, I know, um, yeah, 
I know you've you've kind of been really involved with the transport medicine side, and I want to ask you. You know, it's 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 great and exciting for physicians to go into the field, but the reality may be that that's not not feasible in a lot of areas or of the around the country. So, what is the middle ground? Where do, which direction do you think that transport medicine, in particular, needs to go, and how can uh, a, a person trained like you or Jake or Jonathan kind of facilitate that? I mean, anywhere you're training uh, in the U.S., there's going to be some kind of interfacility transport system, whether it's you know an officially sponsored one by the by the your training site or a regional one or a local one. There is some means of transporting patients between hospitals. And, uh, you know, seeking out that organization and finding out who and how they provide medical direction to get a feel for what the physician, what a physician can and might be, maybe should be doing. Um, it can open up the doors uh, to give somebody a perspective of what's uh, of what's out there. And, and uh, you know, if you're in a, if you're lucky enough to be in a uh, an area um, where there is a strong EMS presence, um Seeking out those physicians who are uh, involved in EMS, and whether it's emergency medicine trained EMS physicians, there's, uh, you know, there are still, uh, you know, there, there are trauma surgeons who are intimately involved with EMS uh, too. Seeking uh, those those experts out, getting an idea of how they intersect, um, and uh, you know, still because uh, as Jake said, it's a relatively new, officially recognized specialty. It's still a lot of who you know. Uh, as networks grow, and we find people who work in the in this section of healthcare, they can introduce you to people as you leave from your training site and move on, and help open doors. Um, so, I'd like to say there's some directory that says where every you know EMS medical director would look for to find their job when they're moving to X, Y, or Z location. But there is still a lot of who you know, and so it, it's it's really important to reach out to those physicians who are involved in it uh, where you are. It's uh, Laszlo here, and I'm with, from a surgical background, so I'm kind of the outside uh, person in this discussion, uh, so I'll try to behave. There's a, a question I had was um, the European paradigm you mentioned. Uh, it seems to me that there's a lot of differences, and one of them that strikes me as fascinating is just the distance of transport in different areas of the nation. And so Europe, I think, is a lot of times a consistent medium-range transport, whereas here you know, in Oregon, we have a lot of fixed wing 400 mile transports from say areas closer to Northern California to Portland. And so do you think that makes it difficult structurally to uh, basically have a unified process around the nation regarding the specialty, regarding rolling these measures and, and uh, policies out? Certainly, I think those play um, significant roles I think the other thing that is a very different paradigm is in the U.S. our fee-for-service model versus in many parts of the country, in particular um, U.K. in the NHS or um, Australia and their program where it's a salaried position and it is um, funded by the public. I think that, you know, something that from this call, at least, Jason and I are working on is we have never even done a great job or any job of defining critical care transport um, in the U.S., and we are working on um, trying to formalize some definitions around that. Um, 
and certainly does every ambulance or 911 call where you somebody is shot and they're a mile from the hospital need a physician on the scene? Not necessarily, but for your 400 mile uh, fixed wing flight for a critically ill patient, maybe need a little bit more insight. Yes, I think there's going to certainly be some improvement as telemedicine continues to um, advance and improve where we can really leverage um, and bring expertise to the um, aircraft. There are still some challenges in many parts of our rural areas in this country with cellular signal, Wi-Fi, et cetera, to get telemedicine as robust as it needs to be. Um, but with some different satellite technology, we're working on improving that. But it, it is a really interesting paradigm. Um, I think, uh, Laszlo, to that point also, um, I, th I think that speaks to why having uh, some kind of formalized training program in EMS uh, is actually, it speaks to some of the benefits of that, you know, similar to, uh, you know, how 400 miles away from a trauma center, um, I, I think the approach to that patient is, is necessarily different based on the resources that you have on hand, and yet people will train in the same training program to give you the perspective to be able to respond in both of those different situations um, and, and why, you know, a formalized EMS training program, um, specialization kind of might give you some of that perspective and, and how to leverage uh, the knowledge to be able to respond in either one of those situations. And all of you uh, conducted almost an exhausting series of specialized training programs uh, to get to where you are. When you say um, a specific uh, training uh, paradigm or training program, how unified would that look like? Would that include the ER part of the residency and or would it just be a fellowship based off that? The, the EMS fellowship now is open to uh, other primary specialties other than emergency medicine. And I think it depends you know, where and what kind of service you may be, you know, thinking of working with. I think a primary 911 service, um, you know, an emergency medicine background is probably your 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 best uh, your best primary specialty. Um, but if you're, you know, strictly do interfacility critical care transports, then, you know, that, that changes it to, to Jake's uh, comment earlier about, you know, sometimes a pediatrician might be the right primary specialty if, if you're children transport program. Um, yeah, but it, you know, in the primary 911 role, I think emergency medicine is probably the right spot to, to start from. It's interesting yeah. because uh, both of you guys also have, uh, or all three of you guys, sorry, have uh, critical care fellowship experience as well. Is that uh, a key component, or should people be, especially as this, these specialties are now establishing themselves, should my my fellow, for example, should they uh, be t thinking about doing an EMS fellowship on top of that if they want to be the medical director, or would they be would it be sufficient if they just wanted to do transport medicine medical direction to come out from their critical care fellowship and be uh, sufficiently uh, clued in to be able to go into that role? Jake can probably answer this best, but I think a couple of the challenges you know that I see with all of this. Uh, is uh, unfortunately I think comes down to money. You know, if you look at like a UK system where medical school and your education and training is about a fraction of, of and of course in Canada too, of what we spend in the United States on, on education, 
once you're in medical school and you're picking a residency and then you decide, okay, I'm going to do a fellowship. Well, what's going to get me the biggest bang for the buck, uh, you know, out of the time that I'm going to spend, you know? So by the time I was done all my training, I was 37 years old. And so it's like, uh, you know, are we going to do one more year? Uh, in retrospect, it would have been great, you know, to, to do sort of the path that, that Jake took to do the extra MS fellowship. I looked to try to challenge the exam. It was, uh, you know, it was going to be too cumbersome to try to, uh, you know, to, to tackle that. It's something I would look forward to look for look to do in the future, simply because I think the way things are moving is that you're going to have to be formally certified, I think, to be able to do uh, to do the EMS world. I think from an interfacility aspect and understanding the medicine, I think being like in my role, being both ER and critical care uh, and having the EMS background, not not necessarily the formal fellowship training, that gives me the benefit of understanding the challenges again from the ER, moving patients, limitations of care what needs to be done to make sure the patients stabilize, uh, you know, before transfer, when, like when my crews get there and the patients, you got a pH of like 6.9 and they're circling the drain, like, you know, time out, we need to do this. And I, that affords me the ability to sort of educate in our system. We have APs, uh, you know, on uh, primarily 24 seven plus, you know, attendings for a covered day for our outlying hospitals. So it gives me the opportunity to be able to educate them and spend some time almost in a telemedicine capacity of what needs to be done and our transport crews as well. Uh, but but I think, you know, unfortunately, uh, uh, I think we're gonna have to head that way. I just think if you don't have, I, the reality is I think if you don't have an EMS background, don't have the passion for pre-hospital care, uh, most people are not gonna go into it. And then, so that's going to further limit the number of people who are therefore interested in pursuing, you know, this this degree of education. Yeah, I think Jonathan, you're right on. the. The key is right now, especially for critical care transport and somebody who's just done critical care training um, is great. And the medicine wise certainly can handle a ventilator setting, et cetera. It's understanding the limitations and the challenges of out of hospital medicine, understanding the environment they're working in, um, whether it be the safety risk, et cetera. Um, you know, and I think you can take this all along. You can take the trauma surgeon that um, a helicopter goes and picks up for somebody who's entrapped on the roadway to maybe do a field amputation, and they don't understand the safety implications of performing in the field. It's not that they can't do the amputation. They're w well more qualified to do that than I am, but they don't know how the fire trucks park and where to go and who does what, what the scene um, assessment and scene safety is. And you really have to understand all of that. So I think if we could, you know, almost do some hybrid where there is some way to get that out of hospital experience, um, there is, you know, some way to get some of that training I think would be uh, really important and is something that we can look to do. Yeah, I think certainly it can uh, form. I remember in my fellowship, it uh, was an option as an elective for one month to to be involved with that, but uh, not a lot of people. And I think looking at most programs, not a lot of people actually go and do or use their critical or their precious uh, elective time to be able to um, go out into the field unless they have a real passion for it. But uh, I think you're you guys are right because you know our patients are getting more complex in the hospital. And inevitably, uh, in a lot of places around the country, these patients uh, start off at a much smaller facility and have to come into the mothership, so to speak. Um, and how do you afford that? 
So uh, I just wanted to touch on tra uh, training in one more aspect because, you know, certainly we have training for the physicians for medical direction that we just talked about. Um, is there a standard that's currently set for the crews um, who are doing a lot of the work? And is that something that needs to be looked at uh, more or is that something that you are looking at or where we are with where, where are we at with that? It's a great question because it's something we, uh, the three of us have talked about probably ad nauseum. Um, and a lot of it got put on hold because of COVID. We had finally started to get a little bit of momentum. And uh, one of the, uh, because it is very disparate all over the country um, and even town to town and even service to service, what that education requirement is for, our, for the crews. Um, and you, I think it's recognized by physicians who do practice in this space that uh, that is a real uh, necessity to have, you know, some kind of standardized guidelines, at least about what an educational program would, would, would look like. And uh, for the interfacility piece, I think that we that there are good guidelines for the pre-hospital piece for, you know, what a, a 911 paramedic will be doing or and even to a much lesser extent, but for the BLS and ALS level transport, interfacility transport, but for critical care transports, um, there's no, there's nothing out there. Um, you say you're a critical care paramedic and therefore you are a critical care paramedic. And uh, as you pointed out, these patients are, they're not getting healthier. Um, you know, there's more and more mechanical devices. There's more and more uh, medications uh, that are unfamiliar to a, 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 a paramedic and, and even quite honestly to uh, you know, ICU nurses without um, specific training uh, taking care of them. Um, so I think having some kind of unified guidance would be invaluable, um, preferably from coming from a society that, you know, kind of hits all the different areas, um, you know, pediatrics, adult, uh, trauma, medical, uh, nursing, true interdisciplinary kind of approach to, to that educational process. And is there, uh, do you think uh, this Society of Critical Care Medicine is the best fit to support that, or are you looking at another society to do that? I'm not sure if somebody um, you know, tipped you off to bring up this, <laughs> this conversation. I, I, to me, I think Society of Critical Care Medicine is the, the correct uh, society to lead these guidelines. Or, um, there's not universal agreement within the society that they are uh, the people to do that though, um, but that's an ongoing conversation. Okay. Now at this yeah, uh, we're looking at, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, just doing a, a join or a combined with the National Association of EMS Physicians um, and Society of Critical Care Medicine, because I think it is um, essential, as we've talked about before, that there is uh, certainly recognition and buy-in from the uh, pre-hospital um, Physicians that are are running this, um, or, or that are also involved in out of hospital medicine. I think that talks to uh, kind of how this is evolving and uh, the fairly young nature of of the specialty as well. Just because there are societies already that are looking at various aspects of uh, the care that we do provide, um, and everybody kind of uh, meets somewhere in the middle with with different aspects of care. So certainly can look through those societies for further information. Um, so uh, specifically for, for Jonathan and, and uh, Jason, you guys also have pursued kind of a, a military opportunity with uh, 
transport. And I just wanted to touch some of our um, current fellows, current practicing uh, intensivists um, have uh, a military background or are involved with reserve services. Um, Jonathan, you're with the U.S. Air Force Reserves. Jason, you're with Army Reserve. Can you talk a little bit about your, your role um, and what kind of career opportunity that might present to someone who's interested in that? Yeah, critical care transport is essentially all within the Air Force. So I'll let Jonathan uh, deal with that. The the Army role is uh, really just battle space, point of injury, uh, and in between battle space to a, a higher level facility. But in terms of true critical care transport, mostly, mostly in John, Jonathan's world. Yeah, so I'm still fairly new at this. Uh, I commissioned about a year ago, so I'm sort of in the process of working my way up to become fully qualified for CCAT, otherwise known as critical care air transport. And they're uh, uh, teams comprised of a physician, uh, oftentimes you're a critical care physician, certainly by the end of your training, but you can be uh, an internist, family practice uh, physician who certainly has the interest. You don't necessarily have to be emergency medicine or uh, critical care uh, trained. Uh, and then a critical care nurse as well as a respiratory therapist. And so uh, the, you uh, you basically form a team, you go through formal training, there's basic and then advanced training, and then your role is essentially the movement of the critically ill patient from point A to point uh, B, and or maybe point Z uh, or Z as we say in Canada, and all points in between. Um, and so, uh, you know, the it's, uh, you have, you know, sort of a multitude of, of bags and equipment and then, uh, you know, you're moving patients uh, oftentimes probably up to a total of six, depending on the acuity, uh, you know, on the back of or in the back of very large, large aircraft sort of, you know, uh, across across the globe. And so, you know, for me, um, you know, getting a little bit older and having sort of accomplished uh, quite a bit, uh, I felt I had a little more room in my schedule to squeeze it in. And so, uh, uh, but it, you know, it's, I've had, I have a lot of friends, uh, who have, who do this uh, currently, who have been deployed, uh, you know, certainly talking with Jason from his capacity as well. And I figured, uh, this was, this was the time to do this. You know, I've wanted to uh, be involved in the military for a while. This was the way to do it as a physician, sort of a little bit later in life, uh, to be able to practice, uh, you know, in a different sort of operational tempo, a different environment. Uh, more challenges and more of the hands-on, right? Because as physicians, as we all know, in the hospital, uh, we're seldom hands-on, right? The, the the bedside nurses are typically the ones, uh, you know, who are with the patients majority of the day. We're there to round and we're there to do procedures as necessary. Uh, but in this capacity, it sort of gets me back, you know, into that that concept of the pre-hospital interfacility transport realm. Uh, and so, uh, and, and, you know, you're the one who has to be there with your team uh, to take care of these patients. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly my privilege uh, to serve. It was, you know, a, a privilege and an honor to join. Uh, and, you know, I'm, just, I'm looking forward to, to more challenges. And of course, the, the camaraderie that you have is very much like what we have in the pre-hospital or EMS and fire service world. Uh, you know, that is just something that uh, people who have never been involved in that kind of a group atmosphere, uh, that dynamic atmosphere will ever un ever understand uh, what what that means, you know, to have a larger family than your primary family, and no, no matter where you are in the world. Uh, can I ask, I, um, about 15 years ago, I did an away rotation in Launchstuhl, Germany, and I had some flashbacks here because we were doing video teleconferencing downrange to give updates on some of these 
patients. And it's just amazing. I mentioned these like three or 400 mile transports. What's amazing about that experience is that these are much longer transports and very sick patients, sometimes with open abdomens. And so, um, you know, both uh, professionally and then even technically, um, have you seen changes, you know, the past decade that have come directly from that military experience? So Jason would probably be better at answering that question. I mean, there are certainly, uh, you know, uh, certainly, I think, some changes in what we do from a trauma standpoint, you know, uh, TXA, uh, perhaps Reboa implementation, depending on where you are, which, of course, was implemented many years ago. Uh, but I think just a general concept of how to better take care of us more, especially the trauma patients. I think um, one of the, the major lessons that has come out of the, the military space has been uh, the sooner you bring uh, high-level medical care to the patient, the better they'll do. And, uh, you know, that, that's the concept behind the CCAT teams and the, the burn teams from, from San Antonio is to bring that, that basically the, the highest-level care to the patient where they're injured, maybe not essentially right on the, on the battlefield, but as close to that area as, as you can. And I think that that has transitioned to, um, I think that we're seeing that more on the civilian side now and, and kind of the genesis, I think, of this conversation, having critical care and EMS trained physicians being involved in, in that discussion and actually in EMS involved physicians in general who are interested in just bringing that high level care, kind of bringing us back to that first conversation we had about um, how do we uh, just improve outcomes um, and um, so sooner, better. Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, what uh, Dr. Scalia used to tell us that critical care is really a concept and it's not uh, defined by a particular location. Really, you know, the location is where the sick patient is and that's where the critical care has to happen. Um, coming towards the end of this, uh, I want to, you know, the, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. I'm sure we could probably spend all day talking about this, um, but uh, hopefully some of our listeners have had, uh, you know, their interest peaked about this. Um, what, uh, what advice would you give someone who's not looked at this before? Maybe they're starting off their fellowship or uh, finishing their residency, going into fellowship, uh, either from EM background or surgery background into critical care, and wants to uh, learn more about this or maybe eventually um, get a job, maybe under the guidance of someone experienced like yourself, what's what should they do to get to that point? Jason, you want to start off? Sure. Um, I think similar to our earlier conversation, reaching out to the people who do it is probably the best way to do it. Um, there's no um, unified directory of critical care transport medical directors, but um, you know they're uh, they're in your area and looking them up and reaching out is a good uh, is a good starting point. Uh, NAMSP National Association of EMS Physicians uh, does have a, a interfacility transport uh, subcommittee reaching out to them getting involved there or on the SECM Society of Critical Care Medicine side uh, their emergency medicine uh, um, committee or interest group um, is also a good place to, to find like-minded people. Jake or John, any other tips? Yeah, I think 
again, if you reach out to people um, locally, some easy to get involved things is working with some education of the field providers. Um, everybody is will always be happy to um, help you educate and you can really see the enthusiasm of our field providers. Um, and they they're hungry for knowledge. Um, they would love to hear any of the insights that you have critical care, etc. Um, I bring in my crews and let them round with me in the ICU. Um, so that's a, another way to just kind of see, let them see how we are thinking. You can understand, ask them how they are thinking and really try to get involved. Um, try to give them feedback when they bring a patient to you um, about what's going on. Give them a call a few days later and give them an update on how the patient is doing. I think you'll really, uh, again, see their enthusiasm, and then that will help your interest grow. Um, it's a great, great profession. I think all of us are really happy that we went down this path, um, and we welcome, more than welcome, other people who are interested and just, you know, call out to any one of us um, or others around the country, and, and we're happy to help mentor you, point you in the right direction. John, anything you'd like to add? I mean, I'll just say, I mean, the, so the, the people that are already in fellowship, uh, you know, I think the what they have to sort of figure out is what they want to do with their career. And uh, there's obviously a variety of fellowship opportunities you can go into from a critical care aspect, whether it's medicine, anesthesia or surgical based. And I think you sort of have to, again, this is still fairly uh, a novel concept and it, there's such a variation, again, uh, between hospitals. Like I'm fortunate to be able to do a 50-50 split. Uh, you know, Jake also. Uh, and so, but, but, you know, you can go to hospitals where uh, you may not have, uh, you may only be able to do one or the other. And so I think it's, this is still, uh, you know, an, an area of growth. I think within your own facility, you should look to see what you can create there or see what opportunities, maybe someone has not even thought of this concept yet. So try to be a little creative and imaginative and growing sort of this, this uh, you know, this split concept. And then for people, you know, the residents uh, who are interested in critical care fellowship, uh, you know, there's certainly a variety of, especially emergency medicine, a variety of fellowships off of emergency medicine if you've decided you wanted to pursue fellowship. If you want to do critical care, you know, again, it's it's usually the people who are very passionate about it. Uh, the EMS aspect is is a little bit different from that. Again, like I think it's mostly the people who have had that background who are going to end up pursuing or getting involved in that realm. Uh, but again, education, I agree with, with with Jake entirely. Get out there and teach. Be involved when you're in the ED and the paramedics bring or the ambulance crews um, bring patients in. Talk to them a little bit, pull them aside, educate them. I do that frequently in the trauma bay. I, I, I have my crews come up to the ICU as well. We do annual review. We started doing case reviews as well, especially with our critical care transport crews. And so, you know, as a resident, you are more than welcome to be there. You can teach, you can learn. Uh, I know I just did a flight shift today and uh, I, you know, this is not my my realm. Uh, you know, I've been out of out of this realm for 14 years at this point, you know, so slowly sort of do it here and there. Uh, um, you know, now it's mostly as a medical director, but getting back into that realm, the crews teach me a lot. And we had a chance to chat about, you know, a few event setting changes and things that were going through my mind. So it's just nice collaboration. Um, but yeah, again, we're, we're here. We're always happy to, uh, you know, to, to give advice and, uh, and, and lend an ear if needed. That's been fantastic. I think, uh, 
It's a, a nice part where we can uh, wrap things up. I think, you know, it, one of the messages that I'm hearing is that, uh, you know, we're getting sicker and sicker patients. There is a, a real importance of uh, good medical direction for uh, transport services, for for EMS as well, um, and certainly uh, emergency medicine trained or other trained uh, uh, critical care physicians are in a key role to be able to provide that medical direction and also training to the to the crews that are involved with that. Um, I think we also need to look at breaking down these silos of care that we've traditionally had and kind of expanding and incorporating our uh, colleagues from the pre-hospital setting into the way we're thinking and also providing additional um, education and insight to them as well. Um, and certainly it's an evolving field with some real opportunities, um, but also a few challenges um, and probably a real exciting time to be involved with it uh, at this stage uh, or in the near future in your career. Uh, so listen, I want to thank our guests. Uh, we'd have Drs. Cohen, Keeperman, and Traeger here. Uh, they took time out of their busy schedule to talk to us about their very unique aspect of, of care, not only um, coming from an EM background, but providing critical care in the hospital, as well as transport and pre-hospital care um, out of a hospital, uh, an area that we uh, are not all involved in. Um, so thank you again for your time. Uh, and I want, from all of us at East, uh, I want you to say stay safe and goodbye.